0: There's a lot of discussion in today's education about, scratch that, starting again. There's a lot of discussion in today's educational world about equity and how to address equity issues in K through 12 schools. Beyond that discussion, many districts have formed committees and started to take action to remedy the inequity. But how can we ensure we are addressing the right issues in the right way? Today's episode focuses on the disparities in advanced courses. There are disparities in enrollment of these courses that are a result of inequitable practices across the K-12 school system, and that disparate enrollment has an impact on college and our students' success in adulthood as these advanced courses set students up for success in college. The gap in enrollment in AP and IB courses of white and Asian students vis-a-vis their Black and Latino peers is staggering. Today's episode shines a light on some of these inequities that exist in K-12 schooling, how they manifest, and how school districts, teachers, and PTAs or PTOs can go about addressing these inequities. We have with us today Dolores from Equal Opportunity Schools. Welcome, Dolores. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Yes, my name is Dolores Camaño and I am the managing director with Equal Opportunity Schools. Ultimately, I lead the team that engages with districts across the country in the hopes that they will partner with us. But before that, I was a teacher. I was a I started out as a kindergarten teacher and the next year after that I taught high school language arts. So, same thing, bigger bodies. And that was when actually I was exposed to Equal Opportunity Schools as a teacher in Missouri. Um, I have my district partnered with EOS. And in full transparency, I was a little taken aback. I loved my babies. I loved everything about being in the classroom. And I saw the disparities myself. I saw what AP classes looked like, and I saw what my standard level courses looked like. And I noticed a stark difference, right? Students like me were in my courses, my standard level courses. Students who looked like me didn't go to AP courses. And it was obvious, but also I thought I was doing the best that I could because I got into education to help students. When we talk about background about me and why I got into education. It's a big deal. I was the student we serve. I was, I grew up in poverty. I grew up in a single parent household. My father was killed when I was four. And so after that, it was really difficult for my mom to raise four kids all on her own with the trauma of, of what had happened. So like many of the students um, I knew when I was a teacher, I didn't have a stable upbringing. Um, school to me was my safe spot. It was a place where I could thrive and be someone different. And, and, and as good as I was, as I was a people pleaser. I wanted that adult interaction. I wanted that adult attention because I never got it at home. As, as dedicated as I was, I just never felt like they saw me. I never got awards in middle school, like the presidential award and I never, um, I never got called out or acknowledged. And, and I, I saw the kids who did. It were the kids like my kids now who, whose mom is the PTA president of her elementary, very visible, very vocal, very involved. So I just, I always knew I was less than, but I was petty and determined to become more right. become come high school, I, I, I realized I didn't have to fight anymore. I didn't have to fight as hard anymore alone because I, I met Ms. Padalecki and she changed everything for me. She didn't feel sorry for me. Um, a lot of times when I teach, I call it the mijo syndrome. I'm Latina, so I might put out some Spanish, just FYZs. Um, there was, I call it the mijo syndrome, like, Oy, mijo, pobrecito. like I feel sorry for you, so I'm going to lower the standards. Um, and a lot of my teachers did that for me because they knew I didn't come from the cookie cutter background. And their intentions were golden, right? They didn't want to set me up for failure. But what a lot of times goes missing in our schools is that idea that students who look like me and grow up like me, life is never gonna be easy for them, for us. So that idea is how can we have high expectations for students regardless of where they come from and provide the necessary support so they can succeed at the highest level. And that's how Ms. Padalecki did for me. And because of that, I was class president. I was editor of the newspaper. I was so involved they couldn't get rid of me because I knew I had her in my corner. And that is the power of a trusted adult, having that person support you and push you and, and just be there for you. And for me and a lot of the students that we serve, sometimes your teacher is your first chance at that. So, so from there, um, I got the Bill Gates Millennium Scholarship and I chose to leave San Antonio, Texas, where a lot of people look like me. And I went to Missouri. Which is the exact opposite. <laughs> so it was, there was a little culture shock when I got off the plane, and I realized I was like, "Whoa, what happened?" Like I had no idea. I was so naive. I had never left San Antonio before. Um, I hadn't had that privilege of travel like my my student, my kids now have. Goodness, and I noticed it right away. But but because Ms. Padalecki pushed me into advanced all AP courses, she pushed, she challenged me on every level. I had developed grit. I knew how to cope in difficult situations. Even when there was blatant racism against me in Missouri, you know, because I was Latina and looked different. Okay, I had a, a student tell me, um, "Don't talk to me. We don't we don't speak Spanish or we don't speak Mexican." And I was like, "Whoa, I don't speak Mexican either, homie. I speak Spanish, but English is my first language." You know, so and and, it, and it's it's funny when you look back at it now. But our students, especially specifically our students of color, they experience these microaggressions, and if they haven't been taught how to coping and, and, and push back and, and, and have that grit. A lot of times it can be too much. I could have given up. I wanted to give up at one point because it was too hard. I was by myself. It was, it was difficult, but like I said, having that support really helped me push through. And when we talk about this work in equal opportunity schools is how can we help students develop that grit and have that support so they can push through any situation that comes their way. So long story short, um, became. Uh, I went to school for journalism. I love everything about it. I love the talk. As you can see, I love to ask questions. Uh, it's my heart. I love doing it, but I love helping students more. And that's the conversation I had to have with myself. I wanted to be Ms. Padalecki. And so I went on to teach high school English and I became Ms. Padalecki. She was a high school English journalism teacher. That's what I became. And, and, and like I said, that's when I was first exposed to equal opportunity schools. And equal opportunity schools is the only thing that could have taken me away from my baby out of the classroom. I
0: love your story, and it, it you know it really resonates on on a number of different levels. A lot of our listeners who are teachers absolutely go into the profession to help their okay. students, right? to help change okay. kids' lives and support them. The other part that really resonates with me is the expectations we set. I mean, I often say the expectations we set for people, whether it's children or those that we manage in our careers, people will rise to those expectations. So you raise the bar, people tend to hit that bar or at least make an effort. And if you set a high bar, yes, it's a challenge, but you will see amazing things when you do it. And your story is proof of that, right? That that raising that bar and then providing that support really pushed you to places where you may have never gone but for that high bar. And so- that is incredible and I love the work that the EOS does to help schools realize how to change that equity gap particularly in AP classes. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with equal opportunity schools, can you just tell us a little bit about what the organization does?
1: Yes, I would love to. Equal opportunity schools exist because there are achievement gaps that exist in our schools. Um, Our mission is to ensure that students of color and low-income students have equitable access to our most rigorous, academically intense high school programs, such as AP, such as IB. And our goal is to make sure they're succeeding at the highest levels.
0: What disparities exist out there? I mean, people generally know, okay, that there might not be equal numbers of students of color or students coming from socioeconomic disadvantage in AP classes. but But what are the numbers out there?
1: Yeah, so across the country, no matter what state we look at, we see a common trend. Low-income students and students of color do, in fact, participate in advanced courses at a lower rate than their medium to high-income white and Asian peers. It's a fact. So across the country, if you want to look at numbers, white students are 1.3 times more likely than Latino students to be enrolled in AP courses across the country, and white students are 1.8 times more likely than our African-American students to be enrolled in AP classes. There is a stark disparity and it it differs. Like, for example, in Texas, those the gap is even deeper where I am. Um, And what becomes more, I would say, problematic is that we see these gaps persist when students leave high school. So, for example, 44 percent of white students who go into college will complete. 71 percent of Asian students who go into college will complete. 21 percent of Latino students like me who go into college will complete. That's one in five. And for our black students it's 23%, almost one in five. So if we don't start addressing this gap at the high school level, the gap will continue to persist at post high school and it will continue to limit the opportunities that are available to us. When we look at my story, I am the only person in my family to ever graduate high college, high school, well, not high school, college. Um, I have a bachelor's, a master's and a specialist degree and because of Bill Gates and that Millennium Scholarship, I have not paid a cent for it. OK, so when we look at the trajectory of that, my children now know about college. My nieces and nephews now know about college. So this work is about changing the now so that we can change what happens next, because my kids are never going to ask me if they're going to college. They're going to ask me when and where. And I'm going to tell them get a scholarship. Right. So it's like I know how to navigate that system so much better now. that they don't have to so that that's the power of this work
0: absolutely and i think it's also really powerful to set this work up in high school because not only the statistics that you mentioned about completing college but also the advantage that participation in ap or ib classes Mm -hmm. gives you in choice of college Mm -hmm. and then success once there right even if you choose to go to a school that doesn't necessarily pursue those higher level advanced classes, you have those advanced skills from high school that gets you ahead, gets you A's in the first year of college and allows you to really yes. excel academically because you've been set up with this rigorous learning in high school. So exactly.
1: I-, I had a 3.99 in my bachelor's and a 4.0 in my master's. And that is not easy to do at a Mizzou. They have a very sh- strict, very intense program. But like you said, I was prepared. And we want our students not only be prepared to get into college, but stay there.
0: For the schools that are actively working to, to try to change this disparity, what are they doing right? What are they what could schools be implementing that aren't doing anything at all?
1: Yeah. And so what we find in that is that in our work in engaging districts, we notice that districts want to make sure their advanced courses are representative of the students walking in and out of their classrooms or their Zooms right now. But, and and sometimes they think um, they'll implement open enrollment policies, which is a policy where AP is open enrollment. Students can sign up as they choose and please. But what they don't know is that an open enrollment policy in and of itself is not enough. Students of color and low-income students still do not have access. Why? Because we, they still don't know what are the barriers that are that what barriers are still existing for students, specifically our low income students of color. Right. They don't realize that in our work, we just we've dissected what those barriers look like. Students lack knowledge of AP. I was so surprised when I was a teacher and we partnered with equal opportunity schools and I started having conversations with students. Because that's what the work wants us to do. Right. Students will pick their trusted adult. They'll pick their Miss Padaleckis. And we encourage those trusted adults to have conversations with their babies. that pick them. It's not brain science. It's just a matter of having the systems in place and the tools to do it. Right. So when I started talking to students, half of them thought there was a test just to get into AP. Well, I don't want to take that test. How do I take that test? And I said, what test? They're like, isn't there an AP test? And I'm like, Boo Bear, the test you take after you take the course. But it was, it, but I would have never known that that was a barrier had we not partnered with equal opportunity schools. And it's not that we're not having conversations with students because teachers work extremely hard. It's that we don't know what conversations to have, right? We, we don't know. And so what students, even, teach, even districts that have the best intentions, they don't have the tools. They don't have the insights. For example, what is that hard data that's readily accessible to them? For me, I had a GPA, I had some test scores, I knew their transcripts, I knew what teachers who taught them in the past, right? That's, that's all I had. And so we're left to make assumptions based on this very limited view of our students. What if there was a way to know more? What if we could know their aspirations, their interests, the barriers that hold each and every single one of them back on an individual level? What if we knew who their Ms. Padaleckis were? What if we knew how they felt about school? What if they knew? What if we could tell teachers what students say they need to be successful from day one? What if we could help you measure which mindset students have? Who has growth mindset? Who has grit? Who has a purpose for learning? All of these mindsets that research shows will help students be successful in more challenging courses. EOS makes that data as readily accessible to our partners as GPA and test scores are for every other district in this country. That's the magic of what we do. And so teachers wanna help. What teachers and districts lack are those intentional tools. And that's why it's imperative that you partner with us. Not, you just need it because it's, the profession is harder now than it ever was. A pandemic, the hybrid model, teachers I know are working harder now than they ever did before. Let's help them. Let's provide them the tools so they can be intentional.
0: You know, you bring up a really good point uh, that I think we always try to tell our audience too, is just simply letting them know that it's available. I mean, it's really sometimes that easy and, and that this is a revolving conversation that we should be continuously talking to students about these opportunities and letting them know what this coursework is. What, what are some of the most effective ways to address this disparity besides just starting the conversation and having them?
1: Yeah, seeing students in a deeper way. And and then having that jump off point. So, for example, in partnership with Equal Opportunity Schools, every student who surveys with us will get a student insight card. And it's like a baseball card with all of this information about each student who surveys. Yes. And it has those mindsets. It has those barriers. It has those um, teacher recommendations. We ask every single teacher when I did this work, when I surveyed, they pulled up every single one of my rosters and they asked me very intentionally, who are the students that are sitting in your classes who should be doing more, who could be doing more? Right. And it's not that teachers don't send recommendations to counselors because we do. But that's not sustainable. That process in and of itself is not sustainable when teachers and counselors are driving in 50 different lanes every single day. What's sustainable, though, is to have that inside card and then to have us populate a number of so We use Apple's fun however many apples it has, it says to teacher recommendations. If a student has three recommendations, that means three out of this student's current teachers. So six or seven think they should be in an advanced course, right? What's sustainable is like now we can run, I've had districts say Dolores, I want a list of every single student, specifically low income students of color, right? Cause that's our gap who has at least one teacher recommendation. How many do you have? I can run that report for them. They want to know, hey, Dolores, I want to know every single student has released one teacher recommendation and who wants to go to college. I can run that report for you. Right. Dolores, I want to know every single I want to know every single student who picked Mrs. Padalecki as their trusted adult. I can run that report for you. So it's about making some of these this information that we've always wanted so accessible to our teachers and our principals and our counselors. And that's the best way to do it is to have intentional conversations with information. In the past, we had to go get and hunt for that information for every single student. Now it's there. And imagine what you can do with it once you have it.
0: Yeah, I think once you're informed, you can make better decisions, right? I mean, they're they're just more cohesive. They're, they're broader perspective-based decisions. And so um, that is really helpful. If you have a school who is just at the early stages, let's say, they think that they may have an equity gap, which based on the statistics before to our listeners, you probably do. Uh, what What's a first step?
1: Yeah, a first step is really identifying those cha- those equity champions on your campus who want to do this work, right? Figuring out who you have behind you so that you understand the work that's ahead in terms of shifting other mindsets. Because not everyone is going to be so to speak, down for this work. Right. If, if they were, this gap probably wouldn't be as large as it, as it is. Right. So it's taking an internal assessment of your staff and, and what are policies and systems that you currently have in place so that you can start taking a deep look at yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What kind of goals do schools typically set for their first year?
1: Yeah. And that's the beauty of, of, of our model. any, district that partners with us, will get a personalized partnership director. So for example, when I left the classroom, I became a partnership director. I had done this work as a teacher. I was a student that we hope to serve. And now it was my job to guide my districts do this work together. Right. So that partnership director will learn about each individual school. So for example, I worked in Charlotte, Mack in North Carolina. Um, We started with four schools and now they have 21 schools with us. In that first year, I had to get to learn each of those four campuses because each campus is different, even if you're in the same district. Right. So it was my job to learn what they were doing. And then from there, goal set. So when you ask me what's a goal for each, it just depends on each school's, um, the, de- the students that are there, what we're able to find in terms of students who should be and aren't. Right. Um, so the, the goal will depend on each individual campus. But the ultimate goal is that we're either expanding access By increasing the numbers of of, of underrepresented students in in advanced courses, or our goal is making sure that we are offering more AP courses, which inherently opens up access, right? And we can only do that if we have more students signing up, because there's not enough TE to build an AP bio class with just three students. So those AP teachers who have course enrollment that are pretty low, our tools can help build those enrollments so the classes actually make, which actually helps kids, Right, there are some campuses that I work with that don't have music theory, AP music theory. They don't have AP um, their AP drawing courses. All of these other courses that students would thrive in, they may not be, they may not love English or, or a calc, but they want to express themselves creatively. And if they don't have access to that, we we're limiting that access.
0: That's interesting and a really good point that there isn't one path to success here, and that really understanding first, your champions on campus, second, what the students need will inform your goals for year one, year two and beyond. So that makes a lot of sense to me. If you're thinking about pulling together, if you're a school, I should say thinking about pulling together a committee, you've mentioned your equity champions on campus. And so identifying those and, and pulling some or potentially all into a committee, I think is probably a good idea. But are there any other key individuals that you think should be on an equity committee for example somebody who is maybe the biggest voice against such a committee i mean do you recommend bringing them on board or, or what's the perfect group in, in your view that you've seen work
1: yeah well i can speak to our personal experience uh, when i did this work and we did have to add in the the the, the mindset we'd have to shift the most. Why? Because we wanted them in this space talking about it with us as opposed to outside of the space talking about it with others. At least in this space, we could control the narrative. And, and, and what I find is that there is no teacher, I've never met a teacher who just didn't like kids or just didn't want to do what's right. A lot of times they're uninformed. A lot of times um, they just, the day's moving so quickly that they don't feel like they're getting the information they need to truly understand what is happening. So by inviting, by giving them a seat at the table, we remove that barrier and we remove that excuse. And what and what I've seen is that a lot of times the mindsets will shift once they have a place at the table. Yeah, I
0: I, I think of times where you can have two arguments for advancing equity that end up with two completely different results, right? And sometimes yeah. it's just a matter of not having the data in front of you when you've created your perspective on one of those two mindsets. And so your point about bringing everybody together and sharing the same information and then co-creating what the results should be, I think is important and will allow things to go more smoothly when you get to a point of executing on those goals.
1: Can I add one more point? Absolutely. And I think with that, we have to mention that implicit bias is a real thing and it matters. So for example, in doing this work, sometimes we hear, oh, well, you're just, you just want us to invite every single student into this and they're not going to be able to be successful in those kids and those kids. And and it's our responsibility to push back and say, what do you mean by those kids? Right. Or this assumption that just because they're brown or black, that they were going to require more support than other white students. When I've, I've, (laughs) I didn't need that kind of support. I just needed the access. So, so a part of this work is also um, one, it's it's getting the tools to see students and making sure they have access. But two, when we talk about welcome and, and the importance of belonging and students feeling like they belong in these courses, it's important that we address the staff mindsets of the teachers who will be teaching them. And 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 that you have to look through the lace of the through the lens of race, but also in, for example, I've seen teachers who in an AP course will say, This is the hardest class you're ever gonna take. So if you're not ready, you need to leave now. We call it the weeding out process. We've seen it. So our job as a partnership director is to go in and and say, okay, there's a better way to say that. There's a more effective, more inclusive way to say this in a way that nurtures belonging. For example, hi, this is an AP class. You're likely going to work a little harder than you have in your other courses, but you're here for a reason your teachers wanted you in this space and I'm going to do whatever in my power to make sure that you are successful. Are you in it with me? Let's go. So, and I know that sounds like it's not brain science stories, but that is, these are the conversations we must have to make sure that once students are in the courses, they stay there and they feel like they belong because that's completely within our realm of control as adults in the building. Yeah. And I think what people
0: don't realize is that in your first example the reaction by children who have spent their whole life mm-hmm. presuming they belong mm-hmm. is one of like, yeah, absolutely, I belong here. The reaction by children who have spent their whole life being told implicitly or explicitly that they don't belong, their wow. reaction is to walk away. And and I don't think that the speaker of that statement realizes that the biases that the children have coming into the room, their experiences to date will have them react in these two totally different ways. And that's not the teacher's intention, but your second statement doesn't, it, it sort of takes into account many ways that children have ended up there and many different reactions and is a little more inclusive. So I think that's really powerful. Just like I think your statement about how teachers meaning while setting lower expectations for students in lower grades potentially have influenced children's desires to apply to an AP class, right? So even giving teachers at the high school level that visibility that teachers previously may have lowered the standard. And so, yes, we may not be seeing A pluses from this student. That doesn't mean that they don't belong in an AP class. It may be that other teachers were only holding them to B level work and setting the bar there. And so that exploring that and being open to being inclusive, I think is really, really important. You mentioned you're a PTA mom. The PTA is really central to supporting what the schools are doing in their daily curriculum. The PTA also has these opportunities for extracurricular activities. How can PTAs support in this space?
1: I'm so glad you asked that because I've actually leveraged my PTA PTA role in my district to encourage my district to partner with us because I wrote an email and I said, I want my daughters to be seen as more than just a GPA and a test score and PTA is a force, a force. So how can PTA help is leverage that expect that our students be seen as more than just a GPA and a test score expect that It is our responsibility to ensure our teachers are having the tools that they need and the guidance that they need to truly make sure that every student has access and opportunity on your campus. And I think that is such an unheard voice. Like parent, there's not a parent in the world who would sit here and say, my kid is their GPA. Like we all know there is more to our babies than just that. So it is our obligation to push for that. It is our right to push for that. And so that's where, and, and I'd like to see PTA think about equity in their campuses. Um, what does it look like when we have, um, and I love, I, we just did the Apex Fund Run at my elementary, but what, how does that impact students, low-income students who don't have the resources to ask family members for money and they see all the other students getting prizes and they don't? And how does that going kind to of affect them in the long run? And how does that continue persist when teachers provide low expectations because they feel sorry, right? Because our intentions are good. And it just keeps persisting and persisting that, that sense of I don't belong and I, I have no value, right? So really thinking about some of the things that we do with the best intentions and look at it through an equity lens and how it's impacting students who aren't like our students, right? My girls got um, lots and lots of prizes from APEX. Other students didn't. It breaks breaks my heart, you know? So how do we check what we're doing?
0: What about for school superintendents or principals? What are your thoughts on tips for them in this space?
1: Yeah, learn about us. Learn what, what other districts are doing, right? And specifically with equal opportunity schools, we encourage you to speak to our partners because we know they are, there's a reason why we retain our partners. It's because they see value in our work. Um, I have a district in Texas we've been working with for almost six years, you know, so it's, it's that idea of how can we, and we have us, uh, we have a system and a, um, a model in place that releases responsibility. So we begin to create, encourage schools to build up that sustainability to, to sustain it on their own. But when we talk about the tools that they get, they just don't know how they would ever go back to just relying on a GPA or a test score. Like, how can you go back? after you've seen such a full picture. So yes, reach out, talk to your peers, see what they are doing and be open, be open. Because as a teacher, I remember, Oh, it's another initiative. It's coming. It's going to be gone next year. We have, right. What? I'm going to be honest here. But when my, when my district first partnered with EOS, I was skeptical. Not going to lie. I was, I, oh man, but I rode hard for my kids and I trusted the process And I'm so glad I did because I became a better teacher. We were able to create the most intentional RTI response to intervention that I've ever seen. And our motto of every kid every day and failure is not an option. We were finally able to actually implement what that looked and felt like for our students. So I'm a believer and I want to help you become a believer. Um, But that requires you to step out and to and to and to invite us in for a conversation. Any final tips for our schools? Put your money where your mouth is. You, you include it in your strategic plan. What are you doing to actually, in, act to intentionally achieve those goals and help our most underserved students in our schools? Um, and again, reach out, eoschools.org. And we look forward to hearing from you.
0: We've really appreciated having you on our podcast today. I think if I were to summarize the takeaways for listeners, it's really, if you're a school at the very beginning stages of this, Find equity champions on your campus, identify your current policies, and pull together a committee that includes both those equity champions, the supporters, and potential skeptics, so that you have all those voices at the table. Then build awareness. I think that that includes awareness of where your gaps are. That also includes building awareness for your classes on campus, having conversations with students about what the AP and IB classes are, then create goals. Those goals will look different depending on what you have on your campus, but create those goals and move towards them. You can bring in a third party to help you do that, but definitely create those goals, put your money where your mouth is and move forward. Really this work is about our children as being seen as more than a test score. This is about learning about our students' aspirations, interests, understanding more about their mindsets, and being inclusive in our AP classes. Even if your school isn't doing this work as a formal initiative, you as a PTA can help by being inclusive in your mindset in your work, by potentially funding this kind of work, by being an advocate for all students in your school. You as a teacher can also make a difference don't set lower expectations. Support students achieving the highest levels, regardless of what their background and their perspectives may be. Push those students and support them. We really appreciate your insights today. Your background as a teacher is really invaluable. Your work with EOS is incredible. And thank you so much, Loris, for being on our show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it.
0: Make sure to visit our website at themultipurposeroom.school to subscribe to this show. If you like the topics on this show, we share additional resources on our company blog at www.k12clothing.com. We'll see you next week in The Multipurpose Room.